0: Welcome everyone to episode 34 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt Recruiting Production. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Tanya Butler, founder of Rise Together. Tanya, thank you for being on the show. Welcome.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, All right, let's jump in. We got a lot to talk about today. I'm looking forward to the episode. Uh, Explain to us how and why a Nebraska-born, Missouri-raised, Ivy League-educated, person is now focusing on the importance of workforce development and immigration in Northeast Ohio? I think that's our best opening question we've ever had.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I actually ask myself that question quite often, to be honest, how in the world did I end up here? Um, But I think I can answer it sort of in two parts. One is, how did I end up doing the work that I'm doing? And then two, how did I end up in Ohio? Uh, fair warning, as a Nebraska Cornhusker, I never, ever, ever thought I'd end up in Buckeye World, but alas, here I am. <laughs> um, but looking first at immigration and workforce, um, immigration is the more natural fit of my professional life, at least since I was 16. So I did a high school exchange here, and I went abroad, and I realized the world was a lot bigger than my farm town, and that sort of began the, the expanding of my worldview and so I studied the Middle East in college, both through the lens of learning Arabic and politics and religion and all of that fun stuff. And I think the the really solidifying moment of I want to work in immigration is I was in Berlin in 2015 for work, and they asked me if I would help translate some stories of the refugees that were coming from Syria. Back then I spoke Arabic still now, don't don't ask me now, but back then I, I could and, and I helped Hear their stories and then translate them live in English to the folks who were there. And I think if you experience something like that and see something like that, you can't help but want to be involved in it. Um, you know, in, in my in my mind and in my eyes, it's a flip of a coin. I was born in Nebraska and they were born there and yet we were living completely different realities. So uh, immigration has always been a part of my life story, but I will say workforce is relatively new. Uh, I actually thought I would work with teenagers for my whole professional life. I think they are a magical group of humans. You know, they're trying to figure out who they want to be and just asking for advice from others. But it wasn't until I started grad school that I realized you can do everything for a teenager. But if they don't have a home to go home to, food on the table, if their parents don't feel fulfilled, if their parents don't have an opportunity to sort of reach their dreams, then it makes it a lot harder for the, the student or the teenager to do that. So the shift was very recent when I realized that the end and beginning of change really is workforce and the ways that we empower people through the jobs that they have. Uh, so I, I kind of a weaving path, but here I am working at the intersection of workforce and immigration.
0: Okay. So how does that then bring you to Ohio, specifically <laughs> Cleveland?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I've been here three months, fair warning. So I am a, a new, new resident. But I think that there are two really important moments that got me to Cleveland and, and back to the Midwest. Mind you, I've been on the coast for almost 11 years now. Um, so the first, and, and I'll be a little personal because I think far too often we just tell the polished version of our professional lives. So my, my dad got cancer and passed away a few years ago mm. and going through the process of one- Returning to the Midwest almost weekly, I relearned how beautiful the culture is here. Uh, there really is something special to, to this place in the country. Uh, so that was the first part and the second part was, you know it's not often that we sit there and think about what we might want our eulogy to be about. Uh, and watching my dads and sitting at his funeral, he didn't go to college. he did not have like a, you know, a sexy Ivy League degree or any of the things that are currently on my resume. But everyone talked about how he served his community and how he would help out a neighbor and and anything like that. So that was the first sort of seed of, I think I need to go back towards the Midwest because I would rather have a life like his than a life like the people I'm surrounded by currently. Uh, And then I think the second really big moment was in grad school. I finally realized that I was a part of the brain drain and that you can do meaningful work in the Midwest. I know that sounds so silly, but. They sort of brainwash you a little bit sometimes in in these institutions that you can't. And so I I made a commitment to myself. I would go back home to some degree in the Midwest uh, with three conditions. One, it's on water. Two, has a strong refugee resettlement uh, sort of group or organization. And three, I really wanted a city that had a lot of problems, uh, but a lot of people willing to fix them. So if you know anything about Cleveland, thank God for Lake Erie. Uh, An amazing refugee resettlement organization or community here. Please make sure that you support them. They have a collaborative refugee response. You're a huge part of why I moved here, Global Cleveland. Uh, And then three, I love how endearing everyone is here. They know we've got issues. (laughs) It's hard to find a Clevelander who doesn't talk about the issues of this city or this region, but they all want to be a part of the change. So kind of a long story of getting me back here, but I think all, all really important pieces to pivot from the East Coast to Northeast Ohio.
0: Yeah, I mean, you made a, a lot of good points there. Um, I think if everyone operated, every decision that they made in their life, if they operated with the end goal in mind, as in who will attend my funeral, I think the world would be just a smidge better. Um, so, I yeah, I mean, I I, I like that thought process. Um, okay so let's let's go back to schooling education graduate of Dartmouth um, we won't get into where that places is in the um, the hierarchy of Ivys although because I'm not smart enough to go to an Ivy I always like to uh, bring that up to anyone who went to an <laughs> Ivy I think it's just I think it's just funny everyone usually has a good reaction so graduate of Dartmouth um, as well as getting your master's from Harvard. So, you know, wherever Dartmouth lies, you also got number one on your on your list. So congrats. Um, you clearly believe in the power of education, but my question to you is what does the future of the traditional four-year degree look like? Um, specifically the last two years have has somewhat changed people's perspective on it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I really love how you also said that I believe in the power of education, because I will say that's the thing I believe in most. I I believe in the power of education, not only to help people transform their own lives, but to truly make change in our world. Um, But I will say that I don't believe that education is brick and mortar schools. So even though I Mm -hmm. went to these elite institutions, I like reading, I like learning, I'm a bit of a school nerd. uh, I don't think that's the only form of education. Um, My favorite philosopher or scholar is John Dewey. And he always says that education is not preparation for life, but life itself. Um, So I think that the power of education is life, it's apprenticeships, it's learning from your grandpa, it's sometimes going to Dartmouth or other times, it's going to one of the amazing community colleges we have here uh, in Cuyahoga County. So all of that being said, I don't think four-year schools are the future. Um, I definitely don't think that they are the only answer for us to get out of some of these holes that we have right now in our country and even in the world. For some people, yes, it's an amazing fit, but I I really would love to see us shift to being like, what's going to make you happy and what do you like to do? Uh, Because our trade schools need more love. They need more people. Uh, Our community colleges need more people. I mean, look at the the job disparities right now in this area, it's not necessarily that we need to push people through expensive four-year schools. We just need to get them, um, skilled and trained. And again, that's not always the Ivy bubble.
0: (laughs) Do you, do you think that if we're, if we're trying to, again, we're, we're painting broad strokes here, but if we're trying to paint a broad stroke on this issue, um, do you think it's simply a branding issue where, because, because uh, our mm. parents, right? So my parents, they were fantastic. They are fantastic. Mm. Um, when I was graduate, when I was a sophomore, junior in high school, we didn't. It wasn't even a thought. We I've said this on the podcast before. It wasn't even a thought to mm-hmm. do anything else but go to a yeah. four year degree. So I think four year degrees now. Part of it back in the seventies and eighties and nineties, it was such a it was a no brainer. The ROI mm-hmm. was there. And it made sense. Slowly, that started. That curve started to no longer look positive, right? The ROI started to turn negative. Colleges got way too expensive for what you were getting a major in. Okay. And so that's why, two-part question. One, I think the top 1% or 5%, whatever you want to say, the Ivies and like the next 30 schools, the Dukes and the MITs and whatever, those are always going to be okay because mm-hmm. I think the ROI will always be there, if not mm-hmm. only for the fact that just the alumni base, Like, I think people go to Harvard for the alumni, forget anything else. It's just because you get to call another Harvard alumni and get a job. So do you think it's just a branding issue where our parents brainwashed? And like what Uh. what happened from like 1992 to (laughs) 2010? Because there was such a shift there.
1: Yeah, that's a a crazy good question. Right. And, and same with our family, my parents didn't go to college and yet it wasn't even a question. I'm one of four, all four of us have degrees. Uh, You know, some of my siblings are even engineers. I I think it was this cultural shift of like the American dream became go to college. And and in many ways, you know, if we could reflect for a second, what a gift that that was the American dream that you could go to college. But I think that sort of the I don't want to, but use the word criminality of it is that we told people to do it. And yet it wasn't actually what was going to give them happiness or success. And then they end up with debt. And then we end up with this mismatched workforce that doesn't actually fit the needs of, of our sort of open jobs, if you will. Um, in terms of branding, a couple things come to mind for me. One, um, I don't know if you ever watched dirty jobs growing up with micro.
0: Fantastic show
1: such a great show. Uh, he actually is realizing there is a branding problem here. And so he has started a foundation where he's trying to get people to go into dirty jobs. Um, mm. because I think they are a little less sexy than what used to be the, like, I'm going to go work at a company that has ping pong tables and a bar. Yeah. But at the end of the day, no one knows this, those dirty jobs actually make way more money than what you do at
0: exactly
1: some of these other, other organizations. Right. So, I think it's that is a big piece. And, and I think the, the most important hurdle that we're gonna to need to overcome because you're right about the alumni is unlocking social capital uh, because social capital should not just be afforded to people who get into certain institutions and needs to be something that is available to everyone. Um, I often reflect on this about when I send an email and someone responds, I'm like, if I didn't go to these schools, people would not respond. <laughs> <laughs> almost full stop. Right. And, and I, I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's how we move forward. Social capital needs to be accessible to all, um, and included with some of that branding change. Yep.
0: Um, all right. So you worked at the EF, uh, or it's mm-hmm. called EF education first, um, in a variety of different positions. Tell us first about what the organization does and then the roles you served. Cause there was a few.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So I started my career at EF Education First, and it is the world's largest international education company, and their goal is to open the world through language, travel, cultural exchange, and academics. Uh, We worked a long time on some of the wording, but what it basically boils down to is whether you're learning a language, doing an exchange, studying abroad, or just going on a class trip, we promise it'll disrupt your comfort zone, and we promise that you'll learn more about yourself and the world in the process. Uh, So pretty easy company to get around the mission and to feel pumped about it. And as I said, with John Dewey, I believe in experiential education. So it was a perfect fit to go there. And I started in their global management trainee program and worked with uh, just an incredible mentor who made me her sticky note kid. And that's important because this is carried out through my whole career, you know, so many organizations and companies and leaders have an idea or a problem that's not super pressing, but, you know, they put it on a sticky note and get to it someday. Uh, that was the program. We got to solve those problems that others didn't have time to do. Uh, so it was great. I literally gallivanted around the world for a full year and got to solve some really interesting problems. Um, and ultimately, at the end, uh, learned a lot about myself to get into my, my next role. Um, which was working with high school exchange students, which is uh, my heart having been one myself uh, building up a youth empowerment program for them and did that for a few years, which was again, teenagers are amazing. I know people give them a lot of like flag, but they're great. It was such a great experience. Uh, But then through that realized that there's a lot of power in storytelling. And so I pivoted to the brand team and worked with, again, another incredible mentor and uh, during that time, we created magic out of letting people experience the world and, and tell their stories. So uh, amazing, amazing experience would not have had any other way to start my career.
0: So that's the first time I've heard this, this, this sticky note kid. Expand on that. So <laughs> first of all, just the concept in general, right? Because, I mean, I literally have three sticky notes <laughs> on my computer. Same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then like a digital note app and I, it's literally, there's a whole nother thing called long-term ideas. So that's, Mm -hmm. that I I do this all the time. So you executed on those ideas?
1: Yeah. Or questions or problems, right? I mean, uh, I'm not sure exactly who listens to, to these episodes, but imagine that you are running a company and you're you're just trying to keep the machine going, or you're just trying to get the end goals or or get the deliverables for your funders. But there's always little things that you know, if we had the time, if we yeah. just had someone who could do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and that's what this program really was, is whatever that X, Y, or Z, we, we got. And uh, the beauty of it is... You're sort of a beast of no nations, but also all nations. Uh, so I would be like cross departmenting and, and cross parts of the organization trying to solve a problem because uh, that was my sole job.
0: Got it. Yeah, kind of the difference between like working on the business versus in the business. So that's awesome. Um, Hundred mm-hmm. percent. All right, so let's let's shift gears. Like you shifted gears after mm-hmm. uh, EF Education First. Um, how was it working for my home state, Connecticut's governor's office? <laughs> um and will you ever go back into the political scene
1: (laughs) oh what a what a intense question (laughs) that that last one um also worth noting that so i applied for grad school in 2019 and got in a week before the world shut down so i got into grad school in 2020 and um, left ef to go to grad school and also realized I want to keep working. You know, the job market was not good back then. So I was always trying to stay engaged with the market. And I want to keep learning through doing, not just in the classroom, uh, which is what brought me to working in the governor's office in Connecticut. Once again, zero connection. <laughs> I sometimes find it funny that I worked for a state I've never lived in. Uh, but a friend of mine actually is, is what got me connected to it. And, you know, Connecticut, I think for me, was one big personal achievement and one big professional. The personal achievement is I imagine many of us throughout the last few years have asked ourselves, am I doing enough? Uh, am I going to be able to sit with my grandchildren in the future? And they're going to ask me about this global pandemic. And I'm going to be able to honestly respond, yes, this is what I did, or this is how I helped those who are disproportionately affected by this crisis of many crises, obviously we faced in the last few years. And Connecticut gave me the opportunity to really, in my heart of hearts, say yes. Uh, You know, they brought in those of us as fellows to help with these problems that were really, really coming up from the pandemic. And so strangely, in many ways, I was the sticky note kid in Connecticut, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever there was a problem that wasn't a part of the the day-to-day work, we would get them. And we sat in the governor's office so we could go cross-department, cross-agency in ways that's a little bit more agile than perhaps a typical state employee was given the, the ability to do so. So professionally, amazing. I'm so, so grateful to the state and to everyone I worked with to let me really be of service to people in that time. Uh, and, you know, professionally, I learned that when policy is good and it works, it works. Uh, and when you really have sort of communication and community then, then government can work. Uh, I think we've all maybe felt a little bit at times that government doesn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> or policy doesn't work. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful that it renewed that in me a, in many ways. And if it's okay, I'll share an example. I think, yeah, that, absolutely. That really drives it home. So um, obviously I'm interested in immigration. I mentioned it to the, the team in the governor's office and we started working on some projects in June and July of 2021 then Afghanistan fell uh, in the beginning mm. of August. And within a few weeks, we proposed a public-private non-pro- nonprofit partnership that would be a task force headed out of the governor's office as a way to ensure that they could welcome as many Afghan evacuees as possible and integrate them into society. This was the first time that the resettlement agencies were invited to sit at a table with members of agencies of the government and other parts of the community. Uh, and within, within this group, I mean, it's such a fun group too, but we were able to do things that I've never seen done and the state had never seen done. You know, Within September to November, we doubled the capacity of the state for welcoming refugees wow. uh, or rather Afghan evacuees, just those from Afghanistan, not the whole sphere. Uh, and even though I'm not in Connecticut now, it's still running. The task force is still going. They've repurposed themselves to prepare for the the last folks from Afghanistan plus Ukraine. And it worked. And it was the lesson of, wow, okay, you can actually bring people together to make programs stronger and policy more efficient, uh, which I think was a true gift I wouldn't have gotten unless I worked for the governor.
0: It's awesome. That, uh, yeah. that makes. Thank you for making Connecticut look good. <laughs> very, <laughs> very appreciated. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's jump into Rise Together. So you recently just launched your own company, which obviously brought you to Cleveland. Uh, talk to us about a couple of different things. One, the company's purpose, what it does, and then how and why you decided to launch it.
1: Yeah. And thanks so much for, for giving me a chance to talk about it. You know, it, it is a, a very young organization, though it's been sort of a brainchild for a little while. So I created Rise Together because I really believe that when workforce, economic development and the international newcomer communities work together, that's when a city can thrive. Uh, And when you kind of come into a similar space, that's when you can make it where people are thriving instead of just barely surviving. So Rise Together is an impact consulting firm. And we partner with organizations uh, such as Global Cleveland and hopefully many others to develop policies, create coalitions uh, and programs sort of help us uplift those who aren't currently being uplifted and some of it, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, no. You, all yeah. you.
1: <laughs> uh, and so anyways, I, I think it's worth noting too. I want to make sure my co-founders uh, get the love and attention they deserve. We started this a year ago because we were in a class about social innovation and education, entrepreneurship, and Rodrigo and Tremaine and I all believed workforce is sort of the key to unlocking equity and access and sort of empowerment in our communities. It was originally a workforce development program that was focused just on power skills, which is what I call soft skills because I think soft skills undermine the power of them. Uh, And then that's a good, that's a
0: good rebranding first of all um, because (laughs) I, yeah, I agree. Soft skills are more important. Everything else can be learned soft skills. Well, actually uh, let's, 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 Go there. Can you teach a soft skill?
1: Some of them, yes.
0: Some of them, right? Yeah, not all. Um, but some.
1: You know, some people are naturally more charismatic than others. Some people are naturally more detail-oriented than others. Um, but there are many of these things that you can teach, and some of it is just like seeing it, yeah. right? I recognize that a lot of the the power skills I love about myself actually come from being raised in the church, yeah. <laughs> and and honestly, it's because I saw it modeled so often, right? Um, so yes, I think, I think you can teach them and I think you can teach them later in life as well. Um, and we see it as a complement to workforce development programs, right. Instead of just the technical skills, it's, it's, uh, an additive piece, but.
0: So you met your founders in grad school?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Got it. And now are they both in, is everyone in Cleveland?
1: No. So, well, worth noting, we actually only met in person once because grad school was online in 2021. Uh, So just like this on Zoom, I spent 100 hours a week (laughs) for school. Um, So we built it during a class in last spring. And then um, we sort of did different iterations of it and had a really intense conversation with ourselves and each other of like, are we willing to take this risk? Yes or no? Um, and for me, I'm at the point in my life I can take this risk. And a mentor of mine said, "If you're in a place where you can take a risk to serve others, you have to do it." And so here I am. Uh, a part of it is that I'm—I don't have any dependents minus a dog, so it, it is a chance to, But they are uh, still very much supporters and dear friends, and I call them far too often, asking for their input on things. But they're not um, here in Cleveland.
0: Got it. Okay. Um... All right, so Rise Together is doing and will obviously continue to do a lot um, in Cleveland and even potentially beyond. Who knows where you're going to be in 10 years, right? Um, yeah. What I want to ask you is more focused around immigration. Mm, um, specifically, great. how the connotation around the word itself has changed in the past, what year is it? 22, five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Um So that's number one. And then we'll go into like refugees and immigrants and kind of the same thought. But how has that word in our like lexicon changed?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a a really important question right now. And and I would even push to say that it's been a problem almost forever. Uh, I think that immigration is never fully understood because it is so complicated and in such a large spectrum of individuals. Particularly in recent history, though, I think what we see on both the news and social media and Lord help us all for the campaign commercials that are going on right now. It's I think we, it's, it's wild, right? We see the word immigration and a picture of the southern border. And yes, that is a piece of immigration, but it is not the full picture by any means. We've got folks who are coming over on refugee status. We have folks who are coming over on a humanitarian parolee. Mind you, those coming from Afghanistan did not come over on refugee status. They came over as humanitarian parolees, right? So, so many other tiny pieces. And then you but have- even. International- but even that,
0: even if we didn't even continue the conversation, just those distinctions, the average person, and again, it's not like necessarily their fault. Everyone has lives to live and I get it. Mm. But like the average person doesn't know that, you know? Yeah. And, and it's just the media then for sometimes for political gain or personal gain or- you know, whatever, um, use that, right, as, as a tool.
1: Correct. And, and, you know, I think something interesting, and I encourage you and others to try this out with your your friends or colleagues, is um, Welcoming America uses the word international newcomer hmm. as a way to sort of combat the, the negative connotation of immigration or immigrant, right? And so when you look at it as sort of a larger spectrum, we're able to get rid of some of that negative feeling if we call them international newcomers, uh, but yes, I think it is a, a serious problem, especially when you do the work that I do or you try to put policy across the table because it's it's a non-starter for many yep. folks, right? Um, versus what they don't realize is we need this community. Uh, if we don't have this community, then our community suffers.
0: Yep. Perfect transition. Um, how do you, how do we, how do all of us show and explain not only... The history of immigration with this country. We're all immigrants, um, one way or the other. Um, how do we show the history of immigration in terms of its positive effects on our economy? And I wanted you to specifically highlight what we talked about yesterday before we recorded, but what would have happened in Ohio in terms of uh, their seats? You know, I think Ohio lost one, they would have lost more than that if not for international immigration. So, how do we do that? How, again, I think it I, this, uh, this podcast has become about branding in <laughs> mm-hmm. one way or the other. Like, how do we rebrand that? I, I don't, I don't know. That's, I'm asking, I'm asking you tough questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I still also have a little bit of my academic brain on having just finished grad school recently. So I love these questions. And I wish we would ask each other these questions more often, right? Like, unless we're a little uncomfortable, we're not learning or growing. And um, so actually I'll, I'll start with, the history of it. Right. Because I would actually say, I do think that we as a country are pretty good at embracing part of our history. Right. I think that people are aware that the country was partially built on the backs of immigrants, especially in the industrial revolution, Cleveland, very much so. Right. I think people like to celebrate that. I think people are well aware that the farmlands, you know, my family heritage, my background is German and Irish. They came to the U S moved to Nebraska, got land during the homestead act. Right. I think people are aware that the farmers and the factories are immigrant supported or were. Right. Um, but I think that people get really stuck in, in that being just like this beautiful picture of immigration. Full stop. It's over. Um, yeah. So I think some of it is talking about it like we're doing now and, and sharing serious facts. So I think stories are powerful. But I also think people need to know that this isn't just a we should do it because it's the right thing to do. We should do that because our economy depends on it in many ways, right? So uh, if you don't mind, I'll nerd out for a second and Please. and share some of the, the things that are really important that even I've learned uh, in recent years, right? So immigrants are not just factory workers and farmers. They are also very much the creators of business in this, in this country. So in 2020, 44% of Fortune 500 companies were, funded by, were founded by immigrants or their children. That's a lot of companies. Uh, and not only are they creating companies, but they're creating jobs. So 62,000 workers were employed by these Fortune 500 companies. And, and they bring in millions of dollars, trillions of dollars into our economy. You know, currently one in five entrepreneurs in the U.S. are immigrants. And they are, of wow. course, hiring Americans at millions uh, rate. And in, I believe, 2020, they generated $1.3 trillion in sales. Right, They are contributing, contributing, contributing. Uh, I heard this really powerful phrase about how the US, the U.S. exports education, right? If we were able to keep more of our immigrants here, imagine what would happen. Uh, hmm. Because often people come here for our higher education institutions and then, and then leave. Yeah. I recently learned, which I never thought of before, I recently learned that of the Nobel Prizes the U.S. has received, a hundred of them were actually immigrants who were wow. naturalized here in the U.S., and if you counted up all the Nobel Prizes that were won by people who are currently studying, living, or teaching in the United States or researching in the United States, it would be the biggest country for Nobel Peace Prizes, even bigger than the U.S. currently is, which is like a juggernaut already, right? So we have this like incredible history of really, really smart and, and hardworking people contributing to our country, and yet the narrative is factory workers and farmers, um, which of course is part of the story, uh, but it's not the whole story. So, you know, I think, like I said, talking about it is, is step one.
0: So can you drill in even further in how this affects Ohio? Right. We talked yesterday about the Mm -hmm. census, Mm -hmm. um, and there's, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously Towards the end of uh, this past decade was a little different, right? Twenty twenty and the pandemic and COVID and everything, and so there's been yep. a different type of shift from uh, coastal cities and things like that. But how how can how has immigration changed yep. affected Ohio in the last ten years, and how how will it in the next ten?
1: Yeah, that's great. And uh, I encourage folks to, to also look up the Gateways for Growth report. Uh, we were really lucky Global Cleveland applied for it, and it is just incredible information about the presence of immigrants in Northeast Ohio. So, actually, speaking of Global Cleveland, Joe Simperman always says this, want to make sure he gets the credit for it that when they did the census and they, and they re sort of established the congressional districts, Ohio lost a seat. But without the immigrant community, the international newcomers, they would have lost two seats. So there has been a a gradual decline of population in the state, and especially up here, except for the immigrant community, Uh, right? So I I believe that uh, in the report, they talk about that the the population declined by 0.4, 0.5%, yet the immigrant population increased by 7.5%, right? They are here, and they are moving here. Uh, And also worth noting, they're not just freeloading, like I believe sometimes people want to think, They're disproportionately represented in the workforce uh, and disproportionately represented in STEM positions, um, which if I, to answer your second question of how are they going to be a part of the future? uh, And I know I'm being like very numbers heavy, but I do think that it's helpful for people to, to picture. So the Fund for Our Economic Future did a survey recently, and they were trying to figure out what's going on with the workforce in Northeast Ohio. And they found that of the folks they spoke to, 80% of these organizations said that they have a talent shortage in the region, Mm. which is significant, right? We all know there's a lot of jobs right now going on or jobs available. Yep. Of the 80% that said they had a talent shortage, 94% said that they're just not getting enough qualified applicants. Hmm. So then when you think about, do you build it or do you buy it? Yep. Yep the question is maybe we're looking differently about what buying it actually means. You know, we don't have the people, we have a population decline. They can't find the talented population to take these jobs. Maybe the answer is where are the workers? Well, they're right here. They're the international talent that just needs you to sponsor their visa. Um, yep. which is a different perspective on buying talent, I think.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. Um, wow okay I didn't think this episode was gonna be focused on branding but I think that's that was the that was the uh, thing that kind of weaved in and out throughout um we'll get you out of here on this uh and you're new to Cleveland so this is actually gonna be an interesting answer for you but hmm. we always like to highlight local area Cleveland restaurants so you've lived in Cleveland for three months four months
1: yeah three months yeah okay
0: what's what's your go-to spot and do you have one maybe you don't
1: Oh, I do. Actually, uh, there is, there's one, one last thing too. I would just want to add that I really would be so sad if I didn't get a chance to share this one quote, because I think it tells the story of rise together and it tells the story of this region and it's by Lila Watson. And she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And I really believe, uh, and that's why I created Rise Together and why I believe Ohio has a chance, that the liberation of the workforce and economic development and the international newcomer community is bound together. They can answer each other's problems. Uh, so I would be sad if I didn't mention that. I believe in it so much. And I, and I hope that to the branding point, more people realize that our liberation is bound up together. Yeah, I
0: love it. I love it. It's a great quote.
1: Can you tell I was raised in a Southern Baptist church? Like I got all these quotes and sayings and stuff. Um, but to restaurants, yes. Okay. So Mason's Creamery helps help mm. me on this city. I went there when I was visiting. I don't even know if that's considered a meal, but I have ice cream for dinner sometimes. So I guess that counts. Yep. Um, Ready, set, coffee is on Detroit Avenue is also really phenomenal. Okay. And then I would say my, my go-to and I think everyone should support them is CASA. And it's downtown across from CSU. It's immigrant owned. uh, And what makes them so special, besides it being incredible Middle Eastern food, is my co-founder and I walked in there this summer and we're starving. And he asks us what we're doing and welcomes us to the city. And and then he was so kind to offer us his office if we needed to take any calls or if we wanted to start our business and had nowhere to go. Uh, And I walked in there like two weeks ago and he remembered me and he was like, you moved to Cleveland. Welcome back. So Casa that is downtown, uh, love them. Great food and just amazing people.
0: That's an amazing story. That's awesome. Yeah, And I think people have recommended Casa before, but they didn't have that story behind it. So that's pretty cool. Um, okay. Uh, last thing is where can everybody find you? Website, social media, where should everybody go to, to learn more?
1: Amazing. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. It turns out I'm like the only Tanya Butler. So you can find me there or rise together CLE.com. Or you can just email me at Tanya at rise together CLE.com. I'm so excited to be in this city. Still can't believe it. Maybe I'll get tumultuous come football season, but I'm uh, uh, super happy to be here.
0: Yeah. uh, The Browns. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. Um, Okay.
1: I'm used to losing. I'm a Husker fan. So I'm ready to be a Browns fan.
0: Yeah, at least you're two full hours away from true Buckeye country. I am right in the heart of it and it's brutal. Um, but yeah, we can, we can commiserate on that uh, at some point soon. We're, we definitely will have you on again. Tanya, we really appreciate it. We wish you the best of luck and uh, thank, you so thank you again and, and we'll talk with you soon.
1: Amazing, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning
0: into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.